Alrighty, hello, and welcome back to Pertaining to People, a podcast about all things anthropology and archaeology. We are your hosts, Jill, Lulu, and Kelsey. And we are very excited today to have a lovely guest who Kelsey will be introducing. Hey, yeah, so I am joining you here from the glorious and gorgeous Kluwani Lake Research Station that is co-owned by the Arctic Institute of North America and the University of Calgary. And the manager up here is Dr. Matthew Ayer. And he's a really cool guy. He has been researching Arctic whaling for a long time and recently discovered a long lost shipwreck in the Arctic. So he's going to tell us a little bit about his work, uh, how he got into archaeology, and we're super excited to have him on the show with us today. So Matt, why don't you start by introducing yourself and giving us a little bit of an insight into where you're from and how you got interested in Arctic whaling history. Okay, that's slightly a long story, but I'll make it as short as possible. Uh, so I'm, Matt. Uh, I'm actually I'm a historical climatologist. I'm not an archaeologist. Uh, so historical climatologist means I use surviving historical documents to reconstruct past climates, uh, and I do that using the surviving logbooks and diaries from the 19th century British Arctic whaling trade. Um, how I got into that, and then I'll get into how I got into archaeology after that, is I never wanted to go to university. I was always interested in stuff, always going to museums and history and things, but I never wanted to go to university. Uh, but then I got really into surfing. I used to, I grew up and lived on the northeast coast of England, and I quickly discovered that when the swell is good, if you go surfing when you're meant to be at work, you get fired. If you go to uni- but if you're at university and you happen to miss a lecture because the surf is good, it doesn't really matter. Uh, and then one thing led to another. I was invited to do a PhD. Uh, looking at these documents for the first time from a climate perspective and now I live in Calgary which is over a thousand kilometers away from the sea but it all worked out pretty good because I love what I do and I love my job and I get to spend half the year up here in Kluwani and then the other half of the year in Calgary and in various archives around the world and then I get to go up to the Arctic as well, the high Arctic as well so I can't really complain as to how things worked out um, my interest in archaeology though uh, started from a very young age. So my grandmother was a member of an amateur archaeology group uh, for the longest time and she dragged me along to lectures and digs every year for all of my childhood. So I've done, I think I've done over 10 seasons. That's so se- cool. Yeah, I've done over 10 seasons digging on a Bronze Age and Iron Age hill fort in uh, Northumberland. Uh, so it's a place called Weather Hill. And then I've been to various other digs and around. So it was inevitable that I was eventually going to come back around and do something in the archaeological sphere. What a cool grandma. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, I she's crazy, the, but she's Growing cool. up like that. Uh, surfing to PhD is quite a jump, uh, but I love that. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was a... I was totally convinced I was going to fail. So it was just a nice way to waste some time. Oh, no. Um, but I, I genuinely became fascinated in the subject. So it, when I actually passed my PhD and, and started a postdoc at the Institute, it was, it. it was pretty cool. And so um, you said you've been in academia for 10 years. I realized that the other day, and now I feel really yeah. old. So how long have you been up north? Uh, so 
I officially took over this job this year. Um, but I moved to Calgary mm-hmm. in twenty, the start of twenty seventeen, uh, and then every year since I've got the opportunity to go to the Arctic a couple of times of the year, come up to Yukon a few times of the year to help out here. Um, I guess I stuck around long enough that they gave me a job here. Uh, so, yeah, it's pretty cool. Awesome. It's like where I grew up was where these whaler, these ships, these logbooks I now work on come from. So. My, the port where I grew up, Newcastle, was a whaling port, and I have a number of logbooks from that port. Uh, I discovered I lived round the corner from the captain. Uh, well dead, but his house was round the corner. Um, and I, So for throughout my PhD, I had this, you know, I was very familiar with where they were starting and coming back to. Um, but then the bit up north was completely alien to me, and I just knew it through reading and, you know, how they described it and obviously modern photographs and, and modern papers etc um but now i'm in canada i get to go there so now i can kind of complete that experience and now i get to see both of these worlds that i read about on a usually a daily basis oh, wow that's very cool so can you explain a little bit more about the climate whaling connection there <laughs> so we all know climate change is a thing and it's very, you know, it's very prevalent in academia, but in the press and, you know, it's going to, well, it is affecting the global population and it will continue to. But it's a pretty, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on the future and there's a lot of emphasis on the deep past. Um, but the fairly recent past is actually kind of hard to figure out. So you can use proxy records, tree rings, sediments, you know, um, ice cores but it depend depending on the proxy depends on the resolution so tree rings you know you get this biannual um, growth which so you get these kind of two points every year which you can look at temperature changes if you start to look at ice cores well that's that becomes decadal if not you know every century and um, but you can go back a really long way um, but in the arctic things are changing so rapidly uh, we you know, since we started measuring sea ice extent via satellite, like you look at the, the extent graph and it just drops off a cliff. But really, there's not a lot of information as to where it was prior to that. If you extrapolate backwards, then it's not long before the northern hemisphere is covered in ice, which clearly wasn't the case, certainly within recent history. So where was the ice 200 years ago? It's quite a tough question to ask um, because it leaves very little trace. Uh, certainly within that time scale there are there are sea ice edge proxies but you have to have very good and uh, there's the ip25 biomarker and you can look at uh, driftwood ice rafted driftwood and but you know the, you need very specific conditions for those to exist um, and they only exist in very certain places and that one point in time you know and one point of ice doesn't necessarily give you a wider picture so this is where the whaling documents come in so whaling has been a huge part of human history forever whales have always been seen as these massive resources you can go back to the paleolithic and see evidence of whale usage at least um but commercial and then eventually commercial whaling started in the 12th century in the bay of biscay uh, and they're hunting the north atlantic right whale and they hunt that population to extinction but they're hunting it for the blubber and that blubber you can render down into oil so it was really it was the first oil trade. It, you know, it was what 
essentially lit and lubricated the start and the, the continuation of the Industrial Revolution before we found crude oil, eventually, when we get there. But once, you know, by about the 16th century, these North Atlantic right whales were, were pretty much gone. Uh, these Basque whalers had gone all the way over to Labrador and Newfoundland. Uh, there's the famous Red Bay wreck site over there from the Basque whaler. Um, searching for other populations, but that, that was a big journey to do in a, you know, a relatively small boat. Uh, and then it, was, it wasn't too long after where William Barentz, the Dutch explorer, was uh, heading north looking for a northeast passage. So these fabled northwest and then northeast passages were the, seen as these you know, this na imperial navigational goals to shorten trade routes with, with the Pacific. Uh, and he'd gone up looking for a, a northeast passage above Russia uh, and discovered Svalbard and all these really big fat whales that looked a little bit like a North Atlantic right whale, which but were much bigger. And these are, this is the bowhead whale. And he comes back and he publishes this. And then that's when commercial Arctic whaling starts. So Britain gets in on the ground floor, the Dutch get in. There's a lot of competition for a lot of years and the Dutch dominate for about a century. But by about 1750, it's, it's Britain that becomes the dominant player in this trade. And then they're hunted in huge numbers. You know, there's up to a thousand boats going up from Europe a year. Like, incredible. Given how long these, these mammals live, you know, they can live well over 200 years. They don't reproduce until, you know, they're about 15 and they only have one calf every few years and decimates that population. And as that population is becoming smaller, the demand for whale oil is, is growing. You know, it, it lit the first streetlights. It became an ingredient in soap, which improved public health. It, you know, it lubricated machinery, which allowed mechanized agriculture and mechanized um, manufacture. It, the baleen, which is the, the keratin plates in its mouth that it uses to feed with, they were used in the, almost exclusively for a long time in the women's fashion industry to make whalebone, they used to term it whalebone. Mm -hmm. You might have heard, heard of whalebone corsets or, or, or petticoats and you can get umbrellas with them and all sorts of, fan you can heat it up and manipulate it. Um, so Europe essentially was modernizing on whale oil and, and specifically on bowhead oil. So that demand was growing. So that, that push for new grounds became, uh, became more needed. And from, from about the mid 18th, but really into the early 19th century, the, the emphasis from that trade switches to the Davis Straits and Baffin Bay and the population in there of bowhead whales. And that's, that's my specific study area. And the way these, these whalers work is they, they leave a UK port, or a, Brit a British port, should I say, uh, in late March, early April. And then they, so it's usually from the northeast coast, so everywhere from Peterhead down to London. So, okay, so just the east coast. Um, and then they'd sail <laughs> up to Orkney or Shetland, where they'd employ about 50% of their crew. And then they'd sail across the Atlantic to meet the ice edge. And it was well known by this point that the best place to find and catch bowheads was on the ice edge. So then they'd follow the ice edge as it melts back throughout the entire summer season. So every day in their logbooks, they're talking about the ice, where it is, what kind of ice it is. So then you can go through those logbooks and those, you know, there's really not many that survive. 
out of the 6,000 plus British voyagers that were sent to the Arctic, there is about 250 logbooks that are known to exist. So it's really not a lot, but they're jam-packed full of information. Um, I'm specifically interested in the ice, but there's also information on uh, wind and weather. So you can do pre precipitation reconstructions, you can do atmospheric circulation reconstructions. So if you look, for example, as they're crossing the Atlantic, if you look at the westerliness of the winds, so you index how many winds are coming from the west, that's a direct correlation with the phase of the North Atlantic Oscillation. So you can start to discuss, you know, what kind of weather Europe is getting or Greenland or, or to some extent Baffin Bay. But what I'm really interested in these reconstructions of ice edges. So they hit this ice and then they travel along it and they push north at every opportunity and they essentially circumnavigate Baffin Bay recording ice. Uh, and what, so if you go through those, you figure out where they are, you mine all that data from these documents and then you can start to put together monthly average ice edge positions for decades throughout the 19th century which is a, a complete, you know, it's a century's extension to the known observed record up there. And you see some really interesting things. So now the sea ice melts back in its complete entirety by late August, certainly by the sea ice minimum, which is about mid-September. Uh, I have records of landfast ice that's still there, multi-year ice, multi-year pack ice, which they used to term the middle ice. And if you look on an old chart of the area, you'll often see this, this term middle ice in the center of Baffin Bay. Um, so even, in, you know, that's not the too distant past, 200 years ago, and there's st even 100 years ago in some of the later records, there's still ice that persists throughout the fall melt season, which we don't see today. Wow, that is amazing. And was your, what was your dissertation specifically looking at then from these records? My PhD thesis looked specifically at whether you could do this with these records. It was known that logbooks were a good... Uh, source of historical climate data, certainly historical maritime data, and given the world is mostly ocean, uh, they, that wind and weather data is particularly useful for reanalysis models and fills in all those gaps. So the more holes you can fill in those models, the more accurate they become, and then they feed into prediction models. Uh, so it was to look at that for the Arctic, but also to explore the wow. how useful they were to for doing sea ice edge reconstructions. And so for for that, I looked at both the Baffin Bay Davis Straits and the Greenland Sea. And then when I moved to Canada, I just decided to focus on Baffin Bay. Excellent call. And you also made some other discoveries in these log books as well. Um, thinking about some of those shipwrecks and objects, but did you ever did you come across anything else that surprised you as you went through the logbooks? Or do you have any favorite finds that you've come across or any interesting tidbits? The more I read them, the more I read these primary documents and um, essentially immerse myself in that world through their eyes, the, the more fascinated I am at the history. You know, it's a lot of history is around. There's been a lot of historians of the whaling trade. You know, it was a really major part of the industrialization of Europe, but it's always been about how it impacted Europe and, you know, the, the money it brought in or the, the things it allowed it to do. I'm really interested in those personal stories and those cultural connections. So I think in terms of favorites, the superstition of the whalers. So there was a, there's one diary that talks about 
how the crew have decided that the engineer, so this was a bit later in the trade when they're steam whalers, uh, so they have you know, their bark rig, but they also have a steam engine, so they have an engineer on board. And the crew have decided that this engineer is possessed with a, with a bad spirit. So they make an effigy of him and run it up the mast and set it on fire. Just little things like that that are never recorded anywhere else. And I think one of, and another thing which I'm beginning to explore more and more, um, certainly as I make more and more friends up on Baffin as well, is the, the connections that were made with the Inuit there. This was a, an organic relationship that developed over a century of you know this this meeting of these two people um and you know they the whalers were up there to catch whales and so any trade that happened was just serendipity and you know they would get some cool keepsakes and um, but this developed over years and then you know naturally there was relationships and now you know every one of my friends on baffin is related to a scottish whaler which is kind of cool and it still appears to be very much part of identity up there if you go to some of the prevalent whaling ports in England, um, it's very rare you could speak to someone and go, oh yeah, yeah, I'm related to a whaler, you know, I have that strong connection to that trade, but that still persists in the North and Canada in certain places. So delving into that is, is kind of cool. And then, and then I guess the archeology span that has come from these records as well, which we can talk about, um, that's, that sort of shifted my research about 90 degrees and I, I procrastinate and do a lot of that now as well as doing the climate stuff so <laughs> we think archaeology is pretty cool too i want to talk a bit more about the people um just because i'm loving this topic and i remember you telling me a bit of a story about one individual who actually an inuit gentleman who actually then went like asked the whalers to take him back over to england do you want to refresh my memory on his story a little bit? Yeah, so uh, towards the late 19th century, so 1876, I believe it was, um, the, it's, the trade is dying. You know, there are barely any bowheads left. Most, most ports have given up decades before. Technology has moved on. You know, there's been the discovery of coal and coal gas and, um, you know, mechanized agriculture is made seed oil far more reliable and there's so really demand for whales was dropping and um, but also the populations were dropping there was barely any whales but it was it was the scottish ports that persisted and they persisted right through to the great war um but there was only five or six boats in the fleet and a lot of their logbooks still exist and in them they talk about trading with this gentleman they term olnick so you see this name crop up year after year in the ver in the same place and about halfway up Baffin Island and they trade with Olnick, they meet Olnick and then Olnick asks, so Olnick is this this leader of uh, approximately 40 people which some are on an island um, and they, they become regular traders with the whalers and Olnick asks one of the captains if he can come to Dundee which is where they're sailing from in Scotland. And this captain refuses initially. And then he asks again the next year and he refuses. And then he asks again a third year and he's like, I want to really see where you're from. You know, you come here every year. I want to I know where you're coming from. 
So the captain agrees that he'll house him over. He'll take him back and he'll house him over the winter. Um, and Olnick becomes a local celebrity. You know, he's he's this interesting guy from the icy edges of the known world. And he becomes whalers. Whaling captains at this time were pretty famous in the local area. So they, you know, I guess they're part of higher society. So he goes off, and I'm I'm still researching his history. Um, and so I need to get back over to the UK to follow up on some of this, but he, you know, he becomes part of that social circle within higher society of Dundee. He goes to dinner parties. He gets invited to estates. He has an audience with the Prince of Wales. You know that that's that's fairly impressive for anyone in England or Scotland. Never mind, you know. This this gentleman who comes all the way from Baffin for. Only six months. Um, but then after six months, he goes back and um, continues to, to live his life. And But every year, the whalers report on him and the newspapers report on him. So you can go back through the newspaper records and you see things like, oh, yeah, the whalers met Olnick in August and, you know, him and his three wives are doing OK. Or they wintered here or um, but he seems like a real character. So it turns out he murdered two men for their wives. Uh, which is kind of crazy. Uh, he was well known for salvaging wrecks. So there's there's evidence of him salvaging the wreck of, an, of the ship called the Eagle, which was actually from St. John's in Newfoundland. Uh, it was built in Dundee, but it was sold, sold to St. John's. Um, and then it was, uh, there's another record of him living in the wreck of the Ravenscraig, a bit further south on Baffin. Um, but then... Then he accidentally sets it on fire and burns it down, so kind of has to move out. Uh, and then in in 1899, there's a diary that talks about trading with him and uh, this gentleman. There's a a member of the aristocracy decided he wants to go shoot polar bears and and walruses and trophy hunt in the Arctic. So he buys a whaler, and they go on this whaling voyage, and he just swans off and shoots things at will. Um, but he meets Olnick and he has this really fascinating diary. And he says there's a really badly tread, half European, half Inuk child as part of Olnick's group. And um, so he trades Olnick a pack of old playing cards for this child. That's the only information I've got. So I'm presuming this child goes back to goes back to Britain. Uh, this guy was from Liverpool. Um, so I, I really, really want to follow up on that. It's kind of crazy. Um, but then in, in 1900, Olnick dies and there happens to be a, the whalers are there trading with him on the day he dies. And there's a whole collection of photographs. So there's photographs of him days before he dies. And then there's a photograph of his funeral and his funeral is published in a newspaper in Dundee with a sketch of this photograph and a full description of his, you know, who he was and he was really well known and and I, I presume well liked given the the amount of times the newspapers reporting on him there was a genuine public interest in his well-being um i'm going down his history it's a little bit of a rabbit hole um uh, so i'm just desperate to get back to the uk and follow up on a few things that i've i've managed to pick out uh well we haven't been able to travel anywhere so. wow i just love that story <laughs> and 
this has already been, I think, one of like the most interesting <laughs> podcast guests. I just, you have so much a wealth of knowledge and it's so fascinating. No offense to the others, but. <laughs> no offense. Yeah, they're all great, but I just, I really love, I so interesting. <laughs> um, Yeah, so I want, or do you have a question or anything, Jill? Well, I I have a couple questions. I've been writing them down, so I can, but you can continue on and I'll we'll get to them. Yeah, no, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> Well, I guess to just continue on that, like, relationships between Inuit and the Europeans, um, how much have you seen of, of that? I mean, beyond Olnek, obviously. Uh, it's pretty interesting. So they're not too much, but also quite a lot. I know that's an oxymoron. But um, <laughs> the logbooks themselves are very... They're, they're, they're official documents for the ship. So that. They're quite staccato in their writing, and they're very official. Um, the diaries, which are few and far between, are far more interesting. And these they tend to be surgeons' diaries. The surgeons on board tended to be the, you know, the educated naturalist people. They were interested in everything. The gossipers. The gossipers, yeah. They, they just write everything down. Um, so, and, and it varies between a very colonialistic view to a very neutral understanding. It's so you have some people that will write and say, you know, these are dirty people and they're, they're thieving and all this to um, other people who say who are like um, they they true, you know, they are at one with their environment and, you know, they truly know how to survive up here. And uh, it is the whalers that have corrupted their way of life. It's really it's, it's really quite interesting. I like the Olnik one because it, it's the other way. It's always, it's usually always from the Western side. Um, but this is, you know, this the Olnik story is the other way. Um, in terms of relationships, uh, I think that was definitely mutual. There's reports of, there's reports of men going to find women, but there's also reports of women climbing on board at night to find the men. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. Uh, but it was because it was never, I think, unlike the Hudson's Bay Company or any of these trading companies that were specifically going up there to to make money uh, off of trade goods. This was a far more organic relationship. They were they were whaling and trading was just a side note, certainly until up until the last decade or two of the trade where it became. Well, there was just no bowheads essentially, so it became more of a trading voyage, and the whalers started to overwinter, um, and that's I think where you get a lot of these remembered relationships. People know the names, and you know people took wives, and there was there was men that stayed up there all winter for a couple of years, and um, at that so it's I think that's why they're I don't know. If the word fondly remembered is correct, you know, I certainly can't speak for for the people I know and their, their relationships with their history. But it's, from the more I'm reading it, 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 it's a different relationship than, say, one with the Hudson's Bay Company. I've totally forgotten what else I was going to say about that, but there was, it, it's, it's something we're be beginning to explore. There's a lot of interest in it. Um, and through some of the, some of the work, I've able to, I've been able to do out with these logbooks. I managed to connect some people in Scotland and some people on Baffin who share relations, um, which is really interesting because you get 
And it's usually on the Scottish side, it's older people who are retired and they're doing their genealogy and they're interested in their family history. And then on Baffin, it tends to be the younger people who are like, oh yeah, I'm related to a whaler. It was Captain Bannerman or whoever. And so it, there's still a really strong connection, I think, between the two places. And I certainly think between, say, Shetland and Baffin, because most crews, half of all crews, and certainly the the lower half of the crews, the deckhands and such, all came from Shetland. And, and Shetland is a remote island. It's a, it was certainly was a largely subsistence community in the past. Um, and it was quite a harsh environment. I think there's a lot of parallels with life on Shetland and life in the Arctic. Different cultures, different places, different foods, but, but similarity, strong similarities, which I think helped build that relationship. And I ended up talking to a, a a musician on Shetland who's a fiddle player and a, and a storyteller. And there's a whole selection of tunes, uh, fiddle tunes in Shetland uh, called the Greenland tunes. And they're all from the whaling trade. And they're still played today. And if you go to Baffin or Greenland or anywhere where whaling happened and there was a, and people already living there, cool. you see that music there today. And the dances and it's it's still there which is kind of cool that's very interesting yeah well and yeah fondly or not there's certainly a connection and um that is something that we talked about in, in our last episode was you know how much europeans learned from indigenous people as well and inuit and so yeah learning to survive in those areas and how to hunt probably there's probably a lot of that knowledge being passed around um it's really interesting to explore that connection. It's very cool. Yeah, and I think it's inter- like it it seems to be of interest on on both sides and I I think because it's, it wasn't exploitative in like the trade was in terms of exploiting the population of whales, but in terms of its connection with people, I I don't get the impression it was. Certainly certainly in North Baffin, um I think as you get later in the trade and they're they're overwintering in the south in Cumberland Sound and and setting up um they set up a mica mine in Kimarut and things. I think at that point when they start employing people, then there might have been some exploitation going on. But that that's certainly not my area of expertise. So Kelsey, did you have an immediate question? Because I can continue on with the other ones that I had. No, you can go ahead. Okay. So one quick one and then one to go back to just the connection with your PhD work. Um, so how did they actually hunt is one of the things that, I'd love for you to talk about a little bit if you could. And then, I don't know how your brain works if you want to do them separately. But the other one is, um, you know, your your PhD work with figuring out if this if this was possible to do. Um, how how do you figure out the like the accuracy of of what they're writing, the ice edge, and like the calibration with, you know, where it actually is. Um, in the world i mean today i guess both both great questions uh so how they hunted is so initially bowheads were really targeted and exploited because when they were slow they were fat uh, and more importantly they floated when they died uh, these are, they are huge animals you know 60 plus feet in length and you know as many tons so the ships that there would be a big main ship so it was usually a bark rigged reinforced ship, maybe 150 feet long. 
Uh, and then there's usually six to eight uh, sloops on the side that would be rowed and sailed that could take six to eight men. And when a whale was seen, they would lower these out, they would row up to the whale, and initially it was all hand harpoons. So someone would literally stand on the front of the boat and throw a harpoon into the side of it. They'd have to wet the rope. So there was someone whose job it was to keep the rope wet because the friction caused by the whale diving was enough to set the boat on fire. And that did happen. And then they'd essentially just tie. Uh, you might have heard the term Nantucket sleigh ride. So it's a very similar method to hunting sperm whales, which the the Americans did um, for you know well over a century and um, but then you, you tie that rope off to the front of the boat and you essentially tire the whale out it's a bit like playing a fish and they would refer to whales as fish they knew they were mammals but they would always say saw a fish caught a fish uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting distinction uh, but then when the whale rises they come up and they'd lance it it's a pretty brutal way of hunting um, and they'd lance it until it would blow blood and then they knew it was going to die. Um, and then this could take 24 hours. This wasn't a quick process. Then they would tow it uh, by the tail back to the main ship and they'd flence it. Uh, so flence is a Dutch word, but it essentially means they peel it. So they have it at the side. They have a very specific setup. They had these like crampons essentially and these sharpened spades and they just rotate the whale and they peel the blubber off in chunks. And then they'd do something called making off, which would then they'd cut the blubber into little cubes and then put it in casks, which were then stored in the ship until you got back to port where they were rendered into oil. And they'd, they'd also do something called gumming, which is where they'd take the baleen out those jaw bones and keep the baleen. And there was, you know, there could be several tons of baleen in just one whale. Uh, so it was a pretty brutal process. And then as technology moved on, it, it, it largely stayed the same, but got slightly more efficient. So the, the harpoon gun came, uh, was invented. And initially it was said that the, the spectioneer, the, the chief harpooner, uh, was just as likely to kill himself as the whale when using a harpoon gun because they blew up so often. Um, but as they got more efficient and safer, the harpoon gun got to be used more. And then as whaling, commercial whaling progressed and you move out of Arctic whaling and you get, you move to the Southern Ocean whaling, then you have faster boats. You're no longer in sailing boats. You have rocket propelled harpoons or grenade harpoons, which explode on impact and instantly kill the whale, which then allowed the whaling industry to, to move away from that now decimated and slow bowhead to the rockal whales that live in the ocean, open ocean. So the blue whales and the fin whales and the say whale, which were then killed in their millions because of these efficiencies. Uh, if you watch the film In the Heart of the Sea, which is based on um, the story of the Essex, which Moby Dick's based on, uh, they, there is a scene there where they're hunting a sperm whale. It, it's largely similar to that, right? Yeah. I'm not going to comment on the, the historical accuracies of it, but it gives you the the impression of of what it must have been like. Um, so, yeah, it was a brutal trade. Whale, um, whale, Arctic whalers were known to be tough, experienced, good sailors, um, which made them desirable to press gangs. 
when the Navy needed crew. Um, but there was a law against impressing whalers because they were so vital to the economy. Um, but it still happened. I, I have boats returning from the Arctic which are boarded by the Navy and they take a portion of the crew. It, it's it, That's another whole interesting aspect of the history. And then I'll get to your second question about accuracies. That's a very good question. How do you know that they're not just making it up? Uh, firstly, it would be a lot of effort to make up a daily logbook and it's far easier to absorb, just, just record stuff. But logbooks serve two purposes. One, they were navigational necessity. You know, this is a sailing ship. This isn't when they, they very rarely record their latitude and longitude. You, you get far more latitudes than you do longitudes because although the longitude problem had been solved by that point, the, the, the chronometers involved in, in accurately determining your longitude were too expensive. These were individual businesses. They, as long as they were on the ice and catching whales, they didn't care. And you actually see this in the logbooks. So you have their sea log and then you have what looks like a port log when they reach the ice. So when they're in port, you get a, just a, a brief paragraph. You get the date, the wind direction, and then a paragraph which kind of just details what happened that day. When they're on open ocean crossing, you get two hourly observations and they're marking their leeway and um, you know their speed and everything. And they're using that to, de to dead reckon so they can figure out where they are. But as soon as they hit the ice, they go back to this port style of log and they don't record it every two hours. And, and I think that's because navigation no longer becomes that necessity. Um, but they do give lots of uh, land bearings, which you can then reconstruct the voyages through. Um, but how do you know they're in the right place? Or how do you know they're just not recording it wrong? And that, that's a really difficult one, but in, you can do it if you have the rare incidents where you have, they, they say, while they're individual businesses, they sail largely in company for safety. Um, and just the way that the environment is and they, they're melting as the ice is melting they're all in the same place at the same time so they say which boats they're in company with so if you happen to have another logbook from the same boat in the same place at the same time if they're saying the same thing then you can say you know you can say with a high degree of confidence that this is correct and what you see in those incidences yes they are correct um, so that gives us confidence in what it's, what you're seeing. And then in terms of determining ice edge, that's also another interesting problem because you might have one boat a year. So for say the month of May, this boat's on the ice edge, but it moves less than 50 kilometers. Doesn't really give you an accurate interpretation of the ice edge. So doing annual ice edges from these logbooks is very difficult. You can kind of make inferences and say, oh yeah, yeah it, it was, there was some ice here, but it doesn't show you something that looks like an ice edge. So what I did was, rather than looking annually, I looked decadally. And then if you plot every ice observation for a given month over a decade, you get something that looks extremely like an ice edge because they're all meeting an average ice edge and they're all meeting the ice at different positions and moving. And for May especially, um, the ice in Baffin Bay follows a particular, there is a limit as to how far it can freeze up. And that's determined by the continental, the edge of the continental shelf and the upwelling of the Labrador current. Um, so you have this sort of southwest northeast line that goes from Labrador up to uh, Disco Island, halfway up Greenland. 
Uh, and we see that today. It's, and May is still a relic of that winter freeze limit. Uh, and when we plot this average ice age for May in the 1820s or 1830s, it follows that line most of the time. But they also pick out annual variations of anomalies that happen. So 1827, 28, the ice edge is more east-west, which is really unusual. And I think this is due to something called a great salinity anomaly, where you have the influx of fresh water hanging around and therefore it suppresses that current and the, the ice can move further move further down essentially, um, which happened in the, the 60s and then the 80s. So we, ha we do have a modern record of it as well. Um, but that's, that's essentially the method for one determining ice age, but determining accuracy as well. Cool. That's very interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So the, um, the Polinias in the area, they, they probably affect things quite a bit, right? Um, they probably, um, had learned a little bit as well to, to utilize those and, um, similar to the Inuit, you know, and, and make those, use those to their advantage, right? Yeah, so they term it the land water because um, they're coming at it from the, the, the seascape perspective. Um, but they use the land fast, so they determine land fast ice as opposed to pack ice and they determine ages of ice as well. But you can sort of look at Polinias a little bit as well. They, they talk about the land water. And it was, the, it was the discovery of the route into the north water that really helped whaling survive past the early 19th century. So it was, if memory serves me right, John Ross going up looking for the, uh, in 1818, uh, on a search for the Northwest Passage. And the whalers follow him as he breaks through this Melville Bay lead where the, the pack ice is cracking away from the landfast ice there. And they discover the North Water. And then they discover that the, the whole stock of bowheads up there, and uh, that kind of reinvigorates the trade and that starts this circumnavigation. Um, but yeah, you can, there's so much, there's so many little bits of information you can tease out of these documents. It's quite fascinating. Very interesting. Yeah. And just for our listeners in the last episode, I talked about the Northwater Polinia. I called it Pikiela Sorsuak, which is. Yes. I can't say the, I can't say the Greenlandic word. So. <laughs> it, it took me a long time, but just <laughs> so there's the connection there. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that is really fascinating, fascinating. And yeah, just, Again, for our listeners, like, this is some of the th stuff that we talked about really right at the beginning about, you know, how you really find out, how you understand the history of people. And some of that is logbooks and these um, reports that we have. And then some of that, you know, as, as you mentioned, uh, Matthew, like the um, ice cores and things like that, that gives us an idea as well. But it's really bringing all these things in together that gives us a nice, a full picture, so to speak. It's fascinating. And um, talking about some of the tidbits of information you were able to tease out of these logbooks and you've come across, do you want to speak a little bit of, to the more recent discoveries that you've made with some of these uh, shipwrecks and how you've been able to fund yourself to get up to the Arctic and actually rediscover some of these lost whaling ships? Because I think that's just a really fascinating story and uh quite an entertaining adventure <laughs> yeah sure so that was um so this is really a story of procrastination uh, i've been transcribing these logbooks for you know at that time what, close to eight years um 
And, you know, I get distracted by various other things. It's so cool. So yeah, it takes me a long time to do this stuff. And in March 2018, I was transcribing the 1902 logbook of the Diana, which is a ship from Dundee. And on the 18th of September, in the Diana's report, it says, um, one of the Nova Zembla's boats came alongside and reported to us that she was ashore a little to the southward and that the water was up to the tween decks, which is the middle decks. Uh, Nova Zembla was another Dundee whaler. Um, I have one diary from the Nova Zembla from 1884. And so it's clear the Nova Zembla's wrecked, ran ashore, uh, and not in really good shape if the water's up to the, the middle decks, which is kind of interesting. But honestly, it wasn't that interesting because over 200 British whaling ships were lost in the Arctic. Um, most of them in Melville Bay. I talked about that, that pushing through the Melville Bay lead. Um, they used to, that was the, the most dangerous part of the whaling voyage. And every, when they sighted the Devil's Thumb, which is this really prominent uh, rock formation on the west coast of Greenland, that was the entrance to Melville Bay. And all the crew would bring their effects up on deck and the supplies up on deck because they knew if the wind changed, they could be crushed by ice and sank in minutes. And it happened a lot. So most of the wrecks are up there. But this, this wreck happened to be on the east coast of Baffin Island. And it was a, a running, running ashore. So I note it down and carry on my work. And then I move on to a 1903 diary that I also have from the Diana after I finished the 1902 logbook. And I'm going through that and they're in the same place again. And they say, some of the crew went to visit the wreck of the Nova Zembla. It lies on a rocky bottom uh, surrounded by boulders and we salvaged the rudder. And I was like, oh, now that's interesting. So I was in the pub that evening uh, with a colleague, uh, Dr. Mike Maloney, who was at the university, he was previously at the University of Calgary, he's an underwater archaeologist. And we were having a beer and I said, I think I might have found a shipwreck on Baffin Island. And we just talked some shit and, you know, complete pie in the sky, romantic ideas of going and finding this thing. And then I thought, well, you know what, I'll do a little bit more research because this is just a silly idea. So I went into the newspaper records because I know... These ships are famous at this time. It's only really Dundee ships that are sailing. So the loss of a ship is a big deal. And I have a subscription to the British Library Newspaper Archive. They've digitized millions and millions of pages of newspapers, which are all text searchable. It's an amazing resource. Um, so I just logged in. I knew exactly where I was looking. And all the crew survived. So Nova Zembla has 40, had 42 crew on board. Um, it was captained by Captain James Cooney. This was his first captaincy. He'd been, a, he'd been first mate for a number of years. Like he finally took over command of the ship and he lost it six months into his inaugural voyage. Um, but they all survived, they all come back to Dundee. Um, I should talk about Cooney a little bit more um, because the company that he was working for, they bought the Vega the next year, um, which was Nova Zembla's sister ship. So Nova Zembla, was built alongside Vega in 1873 in Bremerhaven in Germany as, as whalers. But the Vega is super famous. The Vega is the first ship to ever sail the Northeast Passage under a Swedish under a Swedish flag, Swedish expedition. Um, they still celebrate Vega Day in Sweden today. It's a public holiday. So 1903, Cooney gets command of the Vega. Guess what happens? 
he uh, crushes it in the ice in Melva Bay. Loses it. So then he gets command of the Windward. Windward also happens to be a really famous ship. Uh, it was part of a British uh, expedition to Franz Josef Land, uh, north of Russia. Um, and it happened, it was a supply ship for that expedition. And it happened to meet Nansen uh, as he was coming back from his Fram expedition from the Transpolar Drift. Um, and it brings Nansen back to Tromso so he can, in Norway, so he can publish this news that he's drifted all the way through the Arctic, Arctic pack ice and proving the Transpolar Drift theory. So that makes this the Windward quite famous and well known. But then the Windward is given to um, Robert Peary to be used in his first North Pole expedition. Uh, and then after that expedition, it's then sold back to being a whaler. So it was originally a whaler. And it's given the command of Cap Captain Cooney in 1904. Why do they keep giving this guy command of ships? Like... Because there were so few whaling captains <laughs> left with Arctic experience. But yeah, I know, I don't understand why anyone would sail with him at this point. <laughs> so then he has a few years of relative looks, relative success, i.e. the boat stays upright. Um, and then in 1907, the, in northwest Greenland, the, he runs the windward ashore in a very similar fashion to what happened to Nova Zembla. They were in a snowstorm and it was foggy and they hit a reef. Um, and he loses it and they have to do a near 500 kilometer open water journey to Pond Inlet. Essentially going over from near Karnak all the way to Pond Inlet in open boats. Uh, crazy. This newspaper, we'll go back to the Nova Zembla. All the crew survive. The reporters want to know what happened. So I'm reading all through these newspaper accounts and all these clues start to emerge. They ran ashore 300 yards off a beach. They could, you know, they launched a whaling boat, but it got washed away and smashed. They eventually successfully launched one and got to shore. Um, and they could see the men running around to stay warm on the beach. Uh, they wrecked a mile south of the rocky promontory that protected the natural harbor they were going to. Uh, Captain Cooney ordered the anchors to be dropped immediately to, as they hit the reef to lower the, to lower the weight of the ship to see if they could float it off. Um, the, mass, the, the boilers got thrust up through the deck. The masts fell off. Not, you know, it was stuck. The boat began to break up. And then I suddenly realised that actually maybe we could find this. So then Mike and I would just procrastinate and walk into each other's offices and just talk about it and eventually we got a chart and we plotted all these clues and we went that's oh, probably on this beach here which is about the most remote point on the east coast of baffin so then we looked on google earth as you do and 300 yards off a beach on a northwest heading was a suspiciously shaped blob that was a hundred about 140 feet long and almost looked like it had three dots like bases of masts in the water exactly where we thought it would be which was slightly terrifying and exciting but super low resolution and we're like oh was it that easy so right right we need a high resolution satellite image so we buy we persuade our boss to let us spend a little bit of money because this is completely unfunded um can we buy a high resolution satellite image we said yes so we Buy a high resolution satellite image. It comes, we open it, anomaly gone. It's probably a grounded iceberg because in this high resolution satellite image, we see a bunch of other grounded icebergs. But 
but this anomaly completely gone slightly dejecting and then I happened to share an office uh, with another researcher who's a geomorphologist but does a lot of remote sensing there Dr. Ravi Sankar uh, and he said well let me have a look at that image and I'll do some stuff so he does some something called histogram thresholding like straight over my head don't know what he does but comes and hands me this really interesting image this false color image and he's got a few anomalies circled one of them happens to be a seamount about five miles offshore. I was like, you, through the water, through whatever analysis you've done, you've identified that seamount that is on charts and is known to be there. So then the, the anomaly, which is at the very edge of our um, search grid we put in, uh, which was on a northwest heading, about 150 feet long, about 30 feet wide, and that had a sediment plume in the lee of the current that runs along the shore, made us go, Oh, that looks like a shipwreck. And it was, it was further north to where we thought it was, much closer to the fjord they were trying to get in. But we know Nova Zembla wrecked at 10.20 p.m. at night in a blinding snowstorm, and all hell broke loose. Like you could, and then when the crew were rescued by the Diana and the Eclipse, which were already safely in harbour, you can forgive them when they reported, then they recounted their reports, two, three months later to reporters in Dundee for getting a few of the details slightly wrong. And, you know, you take it with a pinch of salt. Like, which beach were they talking about? Was it this little one or was it that big one? Which rocky promontory? At what point do they define the harbour? You know, was it this little bay at the end of the fjord? Is it the fjord itself? So there was lots of almond and iron. But this, this looked really like a shipwreck. And there's a bunch of papers that talk about identifying shipwrecks from satellite images from sediment plumes in sandy in silty areas. So now we're like, oh, okay, maybe we need to think about this. And this was a, the site's quite remote, but it is off an area of Inuit-owned lands um, for Clyde River. And I have some friends in Clyde River. So said, does anyone know of a shipwreck in the water there? And everyone was like, no, no, like it's a winter hunting ground, you know. And Admittedly, we only talk to a couple of people because we only know a couple of people and this is just procrastination still, but this is this procrastination was leading somewhere and um, so we're like, oh, okay, right, we need to get there. No academic funding is going to touch this with a barge pole. Like if you say you're going to go find a historical shipwreck in the Arctic, they think you're crazy. Like how many people looked for Erebus and Terra for how long and how many tens and millions of dollars were spent doing that? Um, they're not going to let a couple of yahoos who had an idea in the pub do that which is essentially what had happened but we had a pretty strong case so we decided we'd apply for some uh, expedition funding from the Royal Canadian Geographical Society and we sent in our application and then we said look we think we know where this is uh, we'd love to go and confirm that like, here's the evidence, you know, everything I've just said. And they said, yeah, we're into that. How are you going to get there? And I was like, that's a good point. It's, it's as remote as you can get on Baffin Island. It's a very difficult place to get to, and we need to be there in summer. Boats are way too expensive. You know, expedition funding is, is great, but it's not a lot of money. It, it would essentially have flown me and Mike to Baffin Island, and that was it. So wouldn't have got us anywhere and then the arctic institute um 
kindly agreed to match that funding. But we still really didn't have enough money to stage, you know, a trip to this really remote place because we couldn't afford a helicopter. We, we didn't know we were in range of a helicopter. We couldn't, we certainly couldn't afford a boat. And, and then the Royal Canadian Geographical Society said, well, we partner with the cruise company and we do tourist expedition tourist cruises. They're going right past that site. We have a meeting in Calgary next week. Come along. So we go, we present all this evidence, and the cruise company says, yeah, we'll give you two berths, and we'll stop, and we'll give you seven hours on one of our Zodiacs. Because these cruises are expensive. People are paying 20, 30 grand a head to be there. But they were like, yeah, this will be cool. Everyone's going to love this. We really want to support your work. Um, we'll give you seven hours, though, because we have other stuff to do. We were like, okay. So less than six months later, we get on a plane, fly up to, we end up in Kuguruk because one of the cruise company ships runs aground, um, ironically. But I'm, I'm thinking as we're going up, like, this is never going to happen. I've worked in the Arctic before. Like, if you want a day to do something, at least plan three. So seven hours to, to even be at a place, never mind seven hours to then go find something underwater where you think you know, where you just have a an inkling and a couple of 120 year old clues to go by, it's not gonna happen. Also, by the time we'd paid the flights to get there and stuff, we barely had any money left. And to find stuff underwater, you need loads of yellow stuff that's really expensive. You know, magnetometers and side scan sonars and bot some bottom profilers and, you know, ideally dive equipment and all that, like, you know, we didn't have the budget for that. So we compromised. We couldn't get a side scan so now. So we bought a fish finder from Bass Pro. Because, well, essentially it's a it's a side scan so now. And we thought, well, we can see the reef, it's shallow water, you can see the reef from this satellite image, but not in enough detail to see anything on it. So well if we buy a little drone and put it up while we're there. Maybe we could see more detail. Maybe we could see the shape of a hull or something. So we bought. So we went along to the Apple Store and we bought a little drone. And then, but we really needed something like an ROV, something we could film underwater with and go around. So I emailed a company called Deep Trekker that make this little ROV, and said, "Do you rent them? You know, we're going to do this project. We're very limited funds. You know, and they." He, then the president rang me of the company and said, that's super cool. This is the whole reason we started this company because we we're all wreck divers and we love diving wrecks. Um, if you come to Tobamori, Ontario on our base, we'll teach you how to use it and we'll lend it to you for free. So I was like, okay, done. Super generous. So we go off. In fact, it, it was the same ROV. If you've seen the footage where they, they're, going through um, Erebus, Parks Canada underwater, right, where they're, they're, they're driving it through Erebus. It was the same, it was the actual very same one, not just the same model, which was kind of cool. Um, so we did that and then eventually, you know, in August 2018, we, we headed up and we had a week coming out the Northwest Passage and trying to test all our equipment out in the Arctic and realizing it's, you know, it's, it's way too cold to try and fit a fish finder while you're in the water. You should really do it before you're in the water. Um, but the drone worked and things were going well and the weather was glorious. And then 
we eventually get to the site we want to be at. The weather's terrible. The swells come up. It's grey. It's cold. Um, I'd forgotten to pack any pants, which was a real mistake. I was so nervous. Like, this thing came together so quickly. I was so nervous about having all the equipment. Um, I had warm jackets and things. I had my jeans, my pyjama bottoms, and my Gore-Tex shells. You know, it's like, ah, that's a problem. But anyway, we go out. And we're full of confidence. Uh, the expedition, the cruise company expedition crew um, kindly agreed to donate us two staff. Um, so we had Ted, who grew up in Rankin Inlet, and is a you know he's a hunter, and and then we had um, Kelson, Kelson, yeah, who's from Juneau in Alaska, and he was a fisherman. Uh, so they were pretty good on the water themselves, anyway, uh, which was really handy because. It was pretty sketchy on that reef. Like I said, I mentioned earlier, I surfed. Would have been a great place to have a board and surf, but we were dodging waves and in and out. But as we were heading out, you know, it was cold and we were pretty much instantly cold, but me and Mike were pretty confident. So we were like, how quickly do you think we're going to find this? You know, 10 minutes, an hour? And Mike's an underwater archaeologist and he's like, well, you know, these things can take a while even if you're on top of them. But we get there. We go to this, this satellite anomaly that Ravi had identified, thinking, you know, we're just going to go, we're going to be straight on top of a shipwreck, we're going to get all this amazing ROV footage, done and dusted, back to the ship for dinner. And we get there, and it is a very conveniently shaped reef. It's just a collection of boulders. We put the ROV in, we double check the GPS coordinates. It's not, it's not the ship. So, so disappointing. But... We didn't quite put all our eggs in that basket uh, and we designed a survey with the fish finder to essentially go back and forth along this reef throughout most of our search area to figure out, to see if we could see anything. And that, like, that fish finder is not great, but and we had swells, so the swath was going out and in and out and in. So we're getting this very distorted picture, but we couldn't have towed a side sand sonar on there because there were so many boulders. Um, so we would have destroyed it fairly rapidly. So... We start just mowing the lawn with the boat backwards and forwards and looking for anything on this on the the fish finder display that looked unnatural 90 degree corners perfect spheres things like that and after nearly six hours we we see nothing and we're, we have less than an hour left of this trip we tried putting the drone up once to see if we could see things through the water not a thing so back down and then i Turns out I was entering the first stages of hypothermia, wasn't really speaking. Um, Ted had his, thankfully everyone else realised, um, Ted had his polar bear pants on uh, that he uses for hunting. So he, he was like, yeah, put those on. Warmest things I've ever worn. Um, so after that, a cup of coffee, sort of slightly reanimated. And I was like, well, I might as well make the most of it. You know, we're out here in this, this beautiful spot. And from the I know this spot from the whaling records. And I'm like, oh, well, you know. The, the whalers records talk about there being narwhal here and bowheads and, you know, and polar bears. And, and I was like, well, there's no tourists around. We've kind of got this place to ourselves. I'll get my binoculars out and maybe I'll see some stuff. So I start scanning the beach for polar bears and I see a bit of wood. Like, you don't get wood up here. Like, if it's driftwood, it's it's come a long way. It's probably come from Scandinavia or Labrador, and it, but it... It has to get over to the West Greenland Current, go up the West Greenland Current, come across and then come down the East Baffin Current to get there. 
or it's, you know, it's a piece of wood that's dropped off a ship and things like that. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. We didn't have a permit to do any land-based surveys and we didn't have permission to enter any of our own lands. Uh, so we couldn't, uh, and not that we could have landed anyway because the swells were too great. We only had an underwater permit because we thought we were looking for a ship underwater. So I said, well, let's get the drone up and we'll have a look. So plug the battery into the drone. Batteries due to the exposure a drop below 60% wouldn't take off. So threw the batteries down my polar bear pants for 10 minutes to warm them up. Uh, and it heats the battery up just enough that it gets over 60% and the drone will take off. And we have to launch a drone from this little Zodiac. Um, so launch a drone. Instantly, the battery uh, percentage is going down like a timer. So straight over the beach. And then I'm just flying on my phone. And there's just shipwreck on the beach. Rivets, rib timbers, planking with trennels in them. You know, a bit that looked like something from the bowsprit that had that had wire and paint and uh, and then a block and tackle and and then the the drone went nuts and started flashing at me. So it's like excited but also super nervous. And we fly it back over and then trying to catch the drone in five foot of swell. Uh, and it got to a ten second counter. It sounds very dramatized but it got to a 10 second counter it was going to drop out the sky into the water with the only evidence we have that there is something that looks very much like a 19th century ship spread across that beach and mike catches it with three seconds to go which like it was just relief and then so we go okay and the, the ship's radioing us and it's saying, like, you guys have to come back. Like, your seven hours is up. We need to move on. And we're like, ah, but... So we quickly throw... We quickly we go as close to the beach as we dare with the Zodiac. And then we come out approximately 300 yards. Because these historical records say that the ship wrecks 300 yards off a beach. Um, and we find this wreckage on the beach. So we throw the ROV in the water and just drive around. And we can't see anything because... The screen's tiny. It's like four inches square and we're super cold and tired. And we drive it around and then we pull it up and then we go back to the ship. We're excited. We're exhausted. And then we sleep for about 17 hours, like just wiped out with cold. And then we wake wake up and like the next day and the sh cruise is doing its thing. And we're like, we put the ROV in the water. So... Get the memory card out, start playing it. 30 seconds in, Mike pauses it and goes, look. And there's an anchor next to a scour mark and a, and a, and a line of chain. It, like Pretty much exactly where the historical record said it would have been. Uh, and then I realized I'd taken some photos of the telephoto lens of the beach and what we saw was more masts and more planking. But then we had to leave and we had to go. But we were, we were very confident that we'd found the wreck site of Nova Zembla and there was clearly still things here, um, unless another ship had wrecked there. So, but then we're gone and we had to, that was it. Game over, very fun, but right, we need to go back. Like we have to go back. We have to get onto that beach and see what's there. So then the next year we spend trying to find funding and stuff. So we apply for a grant and 
we managed to line up time on a, a research vessel and it was all going great until the grant came back unsuccessful. And then, yeah. So then I rang around and canceled everything. 24 hours later, everyone rang back and went, we'll do it in kind. So 2019, we go back, we had some funding from RCGS again, some funding from the Arctic Institute, um, a little bit of funding from the archeology span department at Calgary as well. Um, but we had less money than the first year. So I hitched a ride on a cruise ship up to Pond Inlet, uh, which they very kindly let me on board in exchange for a lecture. Uh, Mike flew up. Uh, we had a, we worked with some colleagues from Clyde River who were drone pilots. And we all met in Pond Inlet, and then we met the government of Nunavut's fisheries research vessel, the Nulialuk, and went down to site. And the weather had been perfect for a week. And we had a geologist on board who'd been flying in that region. Um, what we took, what we learned actually was that beach is a fuel cache. Uh, so people land on it all the time. Uh, and uh, so that, that made me really nervous. So I was like, oh, well, if it's a fuel cache, like, there's nothing there, you know, surely someone would have said something. And then he said, oh yeah, there's eight polar bears that we saw eight polar bears the other day on this low lying area of land where this beach is. I was like, oh, great. Um, and then the weather forecast said, you know, these 40 knot winds and three meter seas were coming. And I was like, oh, well, you know, at least I get to come to the Arctic. This is great. But we travel down, it takes us about 20 hours to get down there wake up and it is gorgeous flat calm sunny light offshore breeze like as perfect as you could want it so we get straight on the beach this time we have all the permits to be on the beach and the, uh, we have an underwater permit again but we also have a, a terrestrial permit and we have permission from Clyde river to be on their land and um like okay so we have our drone pilots and we have me and mike I'm like great we'll we'll do a, a photogrammetry survey of this beach and we'll we'll see what's there maybe you know, at least we'll see those bits I photographed last year. Maybe there's a bit more. And it was just mind-blowing. The beach is four kilometers long. And from tip to tail, there was just a ship spread all over it. Everywhere you looked. Like, there was, there was too much to even catalog. You couldn't even get close to that. Um, and so we are like, okay, we're running out of time. This weather's coming. You guys do the survey. We're going to walk the beach and just photograph as much as we can and take a visual stock of what's here we found the whaling boat that was initially washed away when they first launched it still had paint on it it was yellow and green with carved motifs in the back uh, we found that the oars from it we found you know those rib timbers everywhere and planks and rivets and we found the masts and there's evidence the masts have been cut and then you if you think about it the masts are connected by all the rigging so all these wires and these ropes to keep it up. If they fall over in the swell and they're cracked, but they're still attached by all the rigging, it starts to pull that hull apart and that hull is your safety net. So the crew would have been frantically cutting them free and they just spread across the beach. We found ornate carvings, which turned out after I got back, when I discovered a painting of Nova Zembla, uh, were from the bow, they match. And it's these ornate floral carvings just lying on the beach, been there for 117 years. Um, as we're walking along the beach, we're finding just, just stuff everywhere. We find a 60 foot section of hull sticking out the sand. Just this, that very stereotypical, almost like fish skeleton of the base of the hull. And it had all been, and it, what it 
appears to have happened is that the ship really isn't on the reef. It's been washed and ice rafted up onto the onto the beach and it's just it exploded essentially. It's just everywhere. Um, it was completely mind blowing. Um, so we spent probably a day and a half going through that beach before the weather came in. Um, and then, you know, we could really then be confident to say this is, you know, this is Nova Zambla. Um, but the store that really leads into a more interesting story now, because on the beach, there was a, a plank that really suspiciously looked like it had been made into a bridge over a piece of over an old stream. And in the beach further south, there was a hunting blind that had two bits of shipwreck in it that had been burnt. And then round the corner, when we ended up having to shelter in the fjord Nova Zambla was trying to get to, because the weather had come in. So that day we walked on Eagle Beach, which was the other beach along there. And there's more bridge-like things and odd bits of ship, which looked like they'd been washed around from Nova Zambla Beach. Now I'm fairly sure it is the wreck of the Eagle, which was abandoned on Eagle Beach uh, eight years earlier than Nova Zembla, and that that had been heavily salvaged by Olnick, who we talked about earlier. But Olnick dies in 1900, two years before Nova Zembla wrecks. And there's a, an oral, a, a paper on oral histories of settlement around the Clyde River region that talk about this group of people that live on this island and that when the, the head guy dies, they all move south and it all just really fit together. Um, so now I guess that's the story of it. And, but now I look at these, these documents in a whole different way because while, you know, there was loads of people in Clyde River knew this wood was all over this beach and that, that it was a ship. Um, I think we'd pretty positively ID'd it as Nova Zembla. Uh, and it turns out nobody's really looked at the whaling trade from an archaeological perspective save for uh, Blacklead and Kekaton Islands uh, in Cumberland Sound with the overwintering sites. So I started going through my logbooks and these newspaper diaries and there is potentially hundreds of wrecks and graves and harbours and archaeological evidence of of life, of that commercial life in the, Ar in the Arctic. Um, so I've been able to add dates and names to known graves and find other wrecks which have been salvaged and um, yeah it's kind of really diverted my research in a whole other direction now. I still do the climate stuff but I get really interested in the discovery stuff. That's amazing. I feel like we've really come full circle in like like so many circles have just been <laughs> just all come around together. That's amazing. That's so cool. I, I paid for the whole seat, but I only used the edge of it. It was it was great. <laughs> it's a lot of fun, and it it's catalyzed more conversations about that. Certainly about the Inuit whaler connection as well. Um, but I think there's a there's potentially a a lot of work that could be done to melt to to bring the two bodies of knowledge together because most a lot of these sites are known. They've just never been attached to their history or their, their Western history, at least. So there's a uh, we have a few projects on the go now where hopefully we're going to be uncovering some more. That's great. Yeah. And I feel like, yeah, some of the things that we've talked about a lot are, you know, both interdisciplinary work and how useful that really can be 
you know, for archaeology, anthropology, I mean, really any field. Um, and it can really bring everything together. But also um, just the, like, archaeology isn't static. And, and this, I think, really showed that too, where even if something's been deposited, doesn't mean that it just sat there. I mean, sometimes it does. But also the things that, um, from the other wrecks that were found and moved and, and pieces that were taken or used as a bridge or whatever, it's, it's really interesting to see the way that that, yeah, the worlds come together and then they're continuously used and changed and used for different purposes. It's, that's, I love that. That's super interesting. Yeah, so I have another account of a much earlier wreck, uh, which came about actually through a, an interview that was done with an elder uh, up in Pond Inlet in the 70s. Um, this gentleman showed me this interview, and it happens to be the, gr the grandfather of one of my friends, which was kind of cool. Um, <laughs> and she'd never seen the interview either, so it was, a, it was a little bit of a journey of discovery for both of us. But this interview, this guy starts talking about a story his grandfather tells him about going over to a wreck and visiting this wreck. Um, and through that, and, you know, kind of estimating timescales, I was able to identify that wreck as the wreck of the chase, which was the second steam whaler. It was from Hull uh, on the east coast of England. It was the second steam whaler to ever go up to the Arctic. And it it was stove by ice, and they, they purposely ran it ashore to repair it, but then it got ice rafted further up the shore, and they couldn't get it off. So they abandoned it. But I have a couple of primary accounts from 18... This was in 1860, but I have one from 1861 and 62 that talks about just a whole group of people, over 100 tents were set up around this to salvage this wreck. And they say they're using the coffee pots to store food and they're, you know, using copper, the copper piping from the steam engines to make things. And, the, and like it, then I just got super fascinated as, you know, these wrecks becoming resources. And so it's a... Yeah, it's pretty interesting, and it's leading to all sorts of other interesting questions, which I probably shouldn't be looking into, as I have, you know, <laughs> other jobs to be doing, but I can't help it. It's too interesting. You have some of the most fruitful procrastination stories ever. I wish my procrastination was as successful as yours has been thus far. No kidding. Yeah. I just need to procrastinate about everything, and then, then I might get stuff done. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. This has been so fun. I've, yeah, it's been so great to hear about all of this. And I'm so excited to hear what your future procrastination um, <laughs> comes up with. <laughs> yeah, so there are some plans in the future. Um, so I'm working with the uh, Ekavik Inuit Youth Program to uh, do some investigation into Inuit whaler identity. Lots of people are related to Scottish whalers, um, so we're kind of bringing together the the Inuit history of the whaling trade with with the no great with with the European side, um, but also through that identifying um, other heritage sites. Uh, you know, there's lots of people know where things are, um, so seeing if we can link that to some of the history that it, that's been written, and then I'm really interested in Olnik. So the plan for 2020 before everything got cancelled was to return to that site and look for Olnick's settlement. As we were, as we were on the beach um, doing the survey, Robert, our drone pilot, looks at the island and he's like, 
there's a story of a bell on that island. It, and he hadn't been up here. He just heard things about people that had been to that location. And I was like, initially, I thought that was, you know, that was Noah's Embler's bell. But now, having learned about the eagle and walked on Eagle Beach and stuff, I'm almost convinced that the eagle has been completely salvaged and that it will be incorporated into this this summer camp, uh, which we have a pretty good handle on where we think it is on the island. And then we know that the engines are in the water. There's an 1899 diary that talks about clearly seeing the engines in the water. And... But I think that aside from identifying more of these sites, which are clearly out there, and you know, that I think the, the concern for me is nobody's really looked at them before or recorded them. And with the increase of personal shipping in the Arctic, they're, they're quite at risk from looting. You know, we were very heavily, you know, very he if you're doing it archaeologically, you're very heavily permitted, but we, we weren't allowed to touch anything. Whereas if you're just there on a yacht, I can see several things people would just pick up because they're cool and keep, and then that stuff's lost and out of context forever. Um, and But I, I, I think, I get the impression that there are tens, if not hundreds of these sites. Um, and then that story of using them and an Olnick story and who was he and what was he doing and like I'm I'm genuinely fascinated by him he sounds like a right character so um I feel like I'm abandoning a lot of my climate stuff as interesting as it is just because the, the history is just dragging me in further and further um and because because I grew up in a whaling old whaling port and I'm very familiar with all those ports and then now I'm becoming I'm getting to know the the Arctic a little bit with the few visits I get to go up there it's I don't know I find it just fascinating I think it's good to follow the way you get pulled and and I mean inherently you can't you can't extricate like Arctic and climate they are always that that relationship is always there so I mean You'll have to think about it no matter what, I think. <laughs> yeah, true. I'm excited to get my for climate better, stuff. For worse. I'm excited to get my climate stuff done, but uh the history stuff's just just so amazing. Yeah. Very cool. It's also amazing how kind people have been with um giving you equipment and giving you opportunities to do your research as well. That's what's that's what's totally blown me away is having done this really without the funding to do it with you know people giving us in-kind support and or supporting us through various ways it, yeah it's amazing but it shows it that, that there is a level of interest there and then this this unexplored i would say largely unexplored piece of physical history you know there's been lots of written on written on the whaling trade but it's linking that back to the physical i think elevates it to a to a deeper level of understanding so hopefully we can get back up there that's the that's the goal um you know, so we we will see i i also discovered i'm potentially related to an arctic whaler and um, so i really need to go and do some of my own genealogy as well as soon as i can get back over to the uk that would that would yeah, that would yeah, round it out nicely if i was related <laughs> yeah. it would explain the interest but <laughs> 
That is such a phenomenal story. And I love that, you know, it all comes back to the people, right? It's always pertaining to people and your own interests and how you can have this full family connection. Like, it's just, it's just amazing. I just can't thank you enough for joining us today and sharing your stories and your knowledge. And you are such a good storyteller. I definitely have to take some tips because, yeah, like Jill said, on the edge of my seat, every time you (laughs) tell stories and talk about your adventures, I can't get enough. It's so wonderful. So thank you so, so much for coming out today and speaking with us. I really appreciate it. Do you, Lulu or Jill, have any other questions? I was just going to say, if there was anything that you wanted to plug, uh, feel free. You know, I don't know, any social media or things that you want people to follow. I don't have any social media, um, but you can look up the Arctic Institute of North America. uh, And I'm currently writing a book on this. So keep an eye out. Hopefully it'll come out in the next year, year or so. We'll see. Absolutely. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that, and if uh, well, let us know, and then we'll we'll let our our followers know so they can check it out. Thank you. But yeah, thank you so much. This was this was really really great. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to come on and talk about this stuff. Awesome. Well, um, I think we'll end it there then. Mm-hmm.